0: As we start, you know, Bree was Bree was going to preach, so I, I kind of stole a few of her notes, and I was asking her, I was like, "Well, how are you going to open the message?" And she was like, <clears throat> "Excuse me." She was like, "I'm going to." I was going to bring up the idea of like, "What is church for?" And I don't mean that, and she didn't mean that, in this grand philosophical "What is church for?" I mean like individually, ask yourself like, "Why am I at church?" and being as we're looking at ephesians and there's this metaphor of battle armor and of swords and of war you have to ask yourself are you a spectator or you a participant in this war and and as i was preparing this message i think it's really easy to to use like fear-mongering and like we are in the middle of a war and we're at war right now and you need to be praying and fighting every moment because you're on the verge of death and Spiritual warfare is real, and it is happening 100%. But the thing is, we don't have to live in fear of that warfare because we have been equipped with the ultimate armor and the ultimate gear, and we'll see that today. But you have to ask yourself, as you're coming every day, as you come every week to church, as you're living your daily life, are you doing the things you need to do to prepare you for this warfare? Because you, it's happening. It's happening. And if you feel like, well, I mean, like, I feel pretty good. Like, I don't feel attacked spiritually. I was like, I, I would question, like, what are you allowing into your life? What, if, what have you settled for being okay? What aspects of your life are you surrendering to the enemy without even knowing it? And again, this isn't a fear thing. This is just a reflection thing. So as we talk today, as we go through the different pieces of armor we're supposed to have, I want you to think to yourself, where have I surrendered to the enemy? Because if you're surrendered, he's not going to fight you on it. You may not see battle there because you've already surrendered it to him. So as we go, think to yourself, am I a spectator or am I a participant? Um, and as, as we look at Ephesians and we talk about these three different pieces of armor, I want you to realize that Paul is not making up this metaphor of the armor of God. This isn't something that he came up with for the Ephesians. As a matter of fact, he's quoting Isaiah 59, 15 through 19. And in the book of Isaiah, the Israelites are not doing great. They are rebelling against God. It's almost as if life is back to the way that it was before Noah's flood. People are doing the things they want to do, people are living the way they want to live. God, like the worship of God, is not on the forefront of their mind. They are just doing exactly as they please themselves. And it even says, the good are slaughtered, and those who renounce evil are attacked. So even during the days of Isaiah, those who are standing there going, hey guys, this this really isn't the right way to be doing things. Like We should be living differently. We should be worshiping God. They are attacked for what they said. Not just ignored, but attacked. So we have to understand that in the days of Isaiah, there really was an attack against goodness, holiness, and righteousness. And so it says in 15 through 19, the Lord looked And was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm. And his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor. And placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance. And wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the west, people will respect the name of the Lord. And in the east, they will glorify him. For he will come like a raging flood tide, driven by the breath of the Lord. And if we'll look back in verse 17, it's interesting because we see the righteousness, the body armor, right? We see the helmet of salvation, which we'll talk about today, but then there's two pieces that the Lord puts on that we are not asked to put on. I'm sorry, it's 18, guys. It says he put, he clothes himself in a robe of vengeance. Why is the Lord putting on a robe of vengeance, but we are not asked to do so? Well, because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And also, I think when, our definition of vengeance and what we understand as vengeance is revenge, enacting our own justice, and we can only do that in the carnal, in the flesh, and in the, in the physical. We don't really possess the tools to gain vengeance in the spiritual realm we can fight against, but to gain vengeance is to to earn a pound of flesh, right? To gain vengeance is to enact our own justice, and we just don't have those tools. So, God puts on this robe of vengeance for us. He takes that burden from us. And then additionally, it says he puts on a cloak of divine passion. And I think if we look at passion in English, we can use it as a word meaning like something that we are very enthused about, like I'm passionate about reading, or I'm passionate about painting. But we can also talk about passion like uh, love and desire. We can be passionate for another person. But our passion is tainted, and it can be tainted by our own personal desires, right? But the Lord's passion, His divine passion is perfect. So, He puts on this cloak of divine passion because His motivations are perfected in that way. I just want us to notice that Lord is wearing armor that we are not. So, that's where we step in to Ephesians. And Luke, last week, came up with this wonderful memorization game. Let's see if you remember. We put on the belt, body armor, boots. Hey, you got it. Awesome. Belt, body armor. Sorry. No. I did the same thing. I did the exact same thing. Belt, body armor, and boots. And so, I was was challenged with coming up with my own cute little rhyme thing to to remember our parts for today. So, today we're going to talk about the shield of faith. We're going to talk about the helmet of righteousness, and we're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit. And so I was like, oh, come on, I don't know. And I was on a walk yesterday, and that's where it came to me. I said, okay, I've got it. I've got it. It's going to be so easy to remember. I mean, I teach high school. I come up with these kind of memorization things all the time. I was like, so a shield is kind of just like a board of wood, right? So it's a board. We put a helmet on top of our gourd, right? Okay. And then we have a Sword, easy. <laughs> so we've got board, gourd, sword, right? Okay, so we, yeah, right. I mean, it, I promise you, you're gonna leave today, and you're gonna know all the pieces. You're gonna just sound ridiculous. Somebody asked me before first service, they're like, "Hey, what are you preaching on today?" And I came this close to saying board, gourd, and sword. And they'd be like, "I'm not. No." It's like, you're like, is that the message translation? I don't know. And, And so let us look in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. It says, A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all the armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle you will be you still will be standing firm that's key we're going to look at that in just a minute stand your ground putting on the belt of truth the body armor of god's righteousness for shoes put on the peace that comes from good news so that you will be fully prepared and it says in addition to all of these hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, and when we're looking at our shield (laughs) or our board, in some translations, it says that can quench the arrows, the flaming arrows of the enemy, and it's funny because as I was looking, you know, we think quench, we think of like when you're thirsty, you quench your thirst, or if you have something that's hot, you quench it and fire, and so I was like, why is quench going into, you know, like a shield, like that doesn't really make sense, and so I looked up the Greek word, and Bo's going to make fun of me for saying it wrong, but it's sebasei. And it basically means to, to quench or extinguish. It's where the modern Greeks get the word to turn the lights off. Like, it literally just means to shut it out. And so I was thinking, like, flaming arrows, shooting against people. Like, I'm not all that flammable. Like, a little bit flammable. But, like, people are not, like, super flammable, right? Whether somebody's standing 100 yards away and they shoot a pointy thing at me, whether or not it's on fire does little to determine whether or not it's going to hurt me. Like, if it goes inside of me, whether it's hot or not, it's still going to hurt and cause some damage, right? So, like, what is the significance of the fire? And so, researching this sermon, I, I, I know so much more about ancient military tactics than I would ever thought I needed to know. And so, I was like, why do people use flaming arrows? Like, flaming arrows, how come? Question mark. And so, apparently, flaming arrows were almost exclusively used during the siege of a city or the siege of like a village. Um, rarely was it ever used directly against infantry, other people, because again, if you hit somebody with an arrow, it's gonna hurt them whether it's on fire or not. But what they would do is they would stand outside of a city and they would shoot flaming arrows into the city to hit like the place where they stored their food so that it would catch fire, the place where they kept their animals house, so that it would catch fire. They would catch fire to the houses where they lived so that that would cause psychological warfare because yes, The enemy is still standing on the battlefield, but they look to their surroundings and they see all of their food being burned up. They look to all their livestock that provides them with food being burned up. And then they look to the houses where their family lives and that's being burned up. And that really demotivates somebody to want to take action. You are still physically fit, but mentally you are no longer prepared for the fight. And that's exactly why they used flaming arrows. It was psychological warfare. And so... When we're thinking about these, <laughs> these attacks from the enemy, though the enemy does attack us directly at times, like sometimes I think when we think about direct attacks from the enemy, we think about like physical ailments, like making us sick or perhaps like giving us a, you know, a headache that keeps it makes it difficult to do our jobs or whatever, like we think about physical ailments, but really a lot of the time the attacks from the enemy are gonna be things that are gonna affect our circumstances. He's going to commit psychological warfare against us. For instance, my wife being sick. You know, my wife was supposed to be up here preaching, and now I'm here. And although I I truly believe she's going to be fine, she's going to be great, she's getting better already, I I have to be truthful with you. This week, there have been times where I've I've had those those fiery arrows come into my brain. He goes, well, like, what if she's not okay? Well, what if Hezzy gets sick? Well, what if you get sick and you can't provide for them? Like, What's going to happen if this and this and this and this and this and this? And then the devil wants to start this domino effect of anxiety in your life. Because if he can get you to start focusing on your circumstances and the things that you're in control of, you're no longer putting your faith in God. You're putting your faith in your ability to control your surroundings. And when you realize that you're powerless to control some of those things, you give up the fight altogether. So as soon as that fiery arrow comes, as soon as that, well, what if Brie doesn't get better? I go, eh, she will. She will. I have faith that she will. And here's the thing about our shield that's different than other shields. In real life, when you have a shield, whether it's bronze or whether it's steel or whether it's made out of wood, the more it's used, the, the more it deteriorates. You know, it breaks, it cracks, it dents. But our shield, our shield of faith, it actually improves with its use because the more that your faith is tested, the greater your endurance is going forward. So the more of these situations of turmoil, these situations of stress, these situations of what if you experience and you're able to lock in to be faithful to God rather than relying on your own ability and circumstances, your faith grows to where the next time those fiery arrows come, you can block them right away. You just stop them right where they are because you're saying, no, 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 no. What's easy for me is I think back to every situation I've been in, whether I was being rebellious or whether it's just a bad circumstance, but I think about everything I've been through that made me go, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to survive this? How am I going to be forgiven for this? And then I go, did God bring me through this or did he abandon me? And never, not even one moment, can I say, nope, God wasn't there. As a matter of fact, not only did he bring me through it, I can look back with hindsight and go, I understand how he was growing my faith in the midst of it. Because though God will not cause us to have these moments of suffering, he can use our suffering to strengthen our faith. So use that shield to stop those arrows before they even come. Um, With Peter, you know, Peter's, Peter's on the boat. He sees Jesus walking on the water, and Peter steps out. Because where are his eyes? His eyes are on Jesus. His eyes are on the ability of Christ in his life. And he steps out, and he begins walking on the waters. But then what does he do? He looks He sees these waves crashing around him. He sees his human feet standing on the water, and he looks at his circumstances and on his own abilities and goes, I'm human. I can't walk on water. He's like, I can't do that. Like, I can't do this. He starts doubting what he sees in front of him, and he starts looking at the circumstances surrounding him and he begins to drown. But what does Jesus do? Pulls him right out. And I think we, you know, we look at Peter and we make fun of Peter because like he, he walks on the water and he falls. You know, he denies the Lord. But all of these situations in Peter's life, I believe, were put there to strengthen his faith. And I would say by the end of his life, his faith was stronger than some of those that he walked with throughout his life. So that is our board. we got board, gourd, sword. Let's move on to the gourd. Arguably, arguably the most important because if you, lo- if you lose your head, you're not really good in battle. You know, the enemy, if you cut your head off, it doesn't matter how sharp your sword is or how if you got like Nike brand like boots on, like he, you're done for, right? And so with our our gourd, I was trying to like, I was, you know, again, doing lots of military research for this. And I started thinking, oh, wow, in the Bible, we have all these illustrations of armor and we see all these situations of war and we talk about helmets and all these infantrymen wear helmets, which is smart because when you have people like, throwing rocks at you and javelins and hitting you with swords, it's probably a good idea to cover this thing up, right? Because you don't want to die. And then modern day infantry, we see they've got these like advanced helmets with like night vision goggles and they've got, um, you know, like microphones in the ear and they can like talk to each other. But then there's a span of history that came into my mind during like the Napoleonic Wars, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, at least from a Western perspective where a lot of infantrymen didn't wear a helmet. They wore like a hat or a cap. And I was like, that's kind of odd that we went like from helmet to no helmet back to helmet again. And I was thinking, when did that start? Like, when did we go back to the helmet? And it really started around World War I. Um, up until World War One, and even during World War One, troops were still wearing caps as like official uniform, right? But as they dug these these trenches, and you know, they're sticking their heads out of the top of this trench, this thing is pretty exposed to like everything else going around. So they had a lot of troops who were who were suffering from head injuries who were dying because of like shrapnel bullets and everything else so there was a Latvian man named something something Brody and he developed this helmet that iconic helmet you know it looks kind of like a frisbee that just kind of sits on top of your head and so he developed this helmet for the French army and the French started using it and then he started distributing it to the other nations and all of these men started wearing this little hat and it started protecting them from shrapnel but what they noticed there's a little anecdote that says when they introduced the helmet over the next couple months they realized that head injuries were increasing and they were like this doesn't make any sense like we had all these guys dying from getting hit in the head and now we give them this helmet and all of a sudden they're getting more head injuries how does that make sense well after the medics started doing research and the, and the officers started doing research what they realized is that those men who were reporting head injuries would have traditionally just been casualties They would have been fatalities because they're still getting hit in the head, but because of the helmet, rather than just getting their head obliterated, they just received like a concussion or a fracture or maybe some heavy bruising. So although it looked as though this was causing more damage, in reality, it was saving more and more lives than they originally realized. And... We have to have that sort of protection, and when you have that protection, you're going to need to expect to be attacked more often. You're going to need to be expected, you're going to need to expect that the enemy is going to try to attack you because you're, attack, you're, you're protecting the most precious thing, which is your head. Your helmet of salvation is our one guarantee that we have above everything else that we are saved. No matter what else is going on, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, ultimately through Christ, we are saved. The war is won already, period. But the enemy is gonna continue to battle us. And that also, as I was researching, I'm thinking like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, the war is won. Why would the enemy spend his time attacking us? Like, at the end of the day, he knows he's lost. So it doesn't, like, I'm like, I don't understand that sort of mindset. But I thought back to this movie that I watched a few years ago, and it's, it's called Downfall, it's in German. Um, and it's about, it's about Hitler, Hitler's last, I can't remember if it's like the last three weeks of his life, last month or so. And it's about his life in his bunker in Berlin. And at that time, you know, Hitler's spending his time underground, the allies are closing in on Berlin. I mean, the war is over, you know, and Hitler is still sitting in his bunker, looking at his maps and he's still telling his, his officers like still push in. Keep going. Send men here. Send men there. And his officers are looking at each other like, dude, there's nobody left. Like, we are losing men left and right every single day. There are men who are leaving. There are men who are just trying to save their own lives, much less being, being taken out by the allies. And they're trying to convince him, which, again, when you're talking to a psychopath, it's really hard to, like, be logical with them. But they're trying to tell him, like, there's nothing we can do. The war is over the war is over, and Hitler's mindset was just take every man you can. Take every last one. He didn't care that he had lost, and also he wouldn't believe that he had lost. He had this mindset of like, nope, I'm just going to keep fighting tooth and nail, and I don't care who's coming. I don't care whether we win. I'm just going to keep swinging as hard as I possibly can, and that's just the attitude of desperation that the enemy has with us. We think that, you know, because of these attacks, because of these, like, evil spirits that come against us, we think that he's sitting up in this throne room or whatever, like, oh, yes, attack, please attack. The enemy is desperate. Also, he's extremely aware of his situation. He has already fallen. He's already defeated, and he is just desperately trying to gain any ground he possibly can and continuing to fail. So, Keep that in mind. Is no, no matter what's happening, your helmet of salvation stays upon your head, and there's nothing we can do to add or to take away from that. There's nothing the enemy can do spiritually to add or take away from that. We are saved. Our salvation is guaranteed and promised. So, that's our gourd. Let's move on to our final piece, our sword. So, we got our board, our gourd, our sword. And final piece, the sword, um, I have a funny story to share with you <laughs> for this one. Um, our sword of the spirit. My father and I used to always go to the gun range and shoot guns as a kid. Um, it was just like a pastime we did. My dad's dad had guns that he passed down. My dad collected guns as a kid and like we just always had lots of guns in our house. Yes, we're those people, okay? We just, we just do. Um, and I remember as a kid one time when my dad was like starting to get me into going to the range and, and practicing with him, he was like, which guns do you want to bring? And I was like, I want to bring all of them. I want to bring like five rifles and two shotguns and five handguns. And he's like, okay, you can bring as many as you want. And so we show up to the range and we spend a couple hours just shooting targets. And we get home and my dad's got like two giant duffel bags. <clears throat> and he, he sets them down at the top of the basement stairs. And I start going upstairs because I'm going to go watch Dexter's laboratory and eat a bowl of Cheerios or something. I mean, like, and he's like, whoa, 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 where are you going? And I go, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm like 13 years old. I'm going to go sit in my room and eat Cheerios. Like, what do you think I'm going to do? He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, we're going to the basement. I'm like, why are we going to the basement? He's like, we're going to go clean all these guns you just shot. I was like, but why? (laughs) And he's like, because son, and my dad never called them weapons. He always called them tools. He's like, you will keep your tools in working order. You will keep them prepared because one, it's it's just a good thing to make sure that you are a good steward of the things that you have. And two, you need to make sure that they're ready to go whenever you need them. And I was like, okay, I guess so. So my dad took me downstairs in the basement. He taught me how to field strip every last one of them. He got me gun oil and I sat there. Well, he showed me how to do one. And then I was like, all right, have a good one. I'm going to go upstairs and watch NASCAR. So my dad left me in the basement for two hours while I cleaned all these guns. And <clears throat> my dad was really good about that as a kid. Like, My dad was really good about showing me how to do things and never doing them for me. My dad was like, if you want to go to the gun range, you can bring as many guns as you want to, but you're going to clean all of them. My dad always told me as a kid, he's like, you can do absolutely whatever you want to as long as you work for it. And he's like, I don't care what you do as long as you work for it. And I think that's an important reminder is like, we're not, we've been given salvation freely, right? Um, but there are still some like, there's an obligation we owe to God to like, to serve him as best as we possibly can. You know, just to be like, oh, thanks for the Savior, God. I'm going to go still do whatever I want. Anyway, so I think that we owe God something and I don't think it should be out of obligation because I think if you truly understand the sacrifice that God made for us, it's not out of obligation. It's out of, there's, I, I will spend the rest of my life attempting to glorify you in the things that I do, though I know I could never do anything that would earn my salvation, but I just feel so committed to you because of how much you've loved me. I will commit the rest of my life to doing that. And to live otherwise, I think, is to misunderstand God's actual love for us. So, uh, the funny story <laughs> about being prepared. I had a buddy in high school named Hunter, and Hunter's dad was a Marine. And when Hunter's dad got out of the Marine Corps, he became a air marshal. And so, he was the dude in the plane that would, like, headbutt hijackers and stuff. And so, he would fly internationally. They put him on all of the, like, high risk flights. You know, he's flying from Atlanta to Berlin, from Berlin to Israel, from from Israel to like Saudi Arabia. Like he's flying the places that it's like you probably going to have to punch somebody kind of things. Um and you would think that that Hunter's dad is Rambo and in reality Hunter's dad looked a lot like me, just with like cleaner cut hair. He's very like Soft-spoken, hey Mitch, how you doing, buddy? Man, come on in, good to see you, buddy. Man, hey hey, man, we're having chicken and dumplings for dinner. Do you wanna come in and have some chicken and dumplings? I'd be so glad to have you. Come on in, Mitch. Just the most soft-spoken kind man you'd ever meet. And then I think about him just like holding somebody in a headlock on a plane like, put your hands on the ground. Anyway, so I'm in the kitchen one day with Hunter and his dad and I go to open the cabinet to get a cup, to get something to drink. And as I open the cabinet, there's a revolver sitting on the third shelf and I went, "Uh, hey, um, Hunter's dad, there's a gun in here, and he's like, oh, yeah, Mitch, I got a gun in every room in the house. He's like, I got a gun in the kitchen, got more than one in my bedroom, got some in the, in the living room, and if you look behind the toilet, I got one Godfather-style taped to the back, just in case, and I was like, why? <laughs> and he was like, you know, just always want to be prepared wherever I am, Mitch. I'm going to defend my home. I'm going to defend my family any way I need to, and if I'm on the, if I'm on the toilet when it happens, I'm ready to roll. I'm like, I guess. And th- but the funny thing about Hunter's dad is that he didn't lock their front door. So we always joke like, you're waiting on somebody, aren't you? Like he's, he's just sitting in his bedroom like, I wish somebody would, I wish somebody would. <laughs> but one day, my other buddy Nick goes to Hunter's house to pick him up because we're all gonna go watch a movie. And so Nick pulls into Hunter's driveway, Hunter's car is gone, but Hunter's dad's truck is there Nick goes to the front door, and he knocks on the door, waits, okay, knocks again. Okay, like, I don't know where, I don't know where Hunter is, but I know the front door is unlocked, so I'll just, I'll just go inside and wait on him in his bedroom or something. So Nick opens the front door, and when you walk into Hunter's room, there's, like, a little, like, foyer where you, like, kick your shoes off or whatever, and then there's, like, The living room over here is the the kitchen and dining room, and then to the left is an L-shaped hallway where all the bedrooms are, and Hunter's room is like down the L-shaped hallway. So, Nick walks in the living room, he looks, and he's like, doesn't see anybody, doesn't see Hunter, looks in the kitchen, nobody's there, and he's like, whatever, I'll just go into Hunter's room. So, he goes down the little L-shaped hallway, and as he turns, coming out of Hunter's dad's bedroom is Hunter's dad in a three-point sling and an AR-15, and he says... Lay your face on the ground, put your hands on your head. <laughs> and Nick's like, whoa, 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 And he's like, I'm saying it right now. And so Nick's like, okay, I guess so. <laughs> so Nick lays face down on the carpet with his hands out like this. And Hunter's dad's like, who are you and what are you doing here? Nick's like, I'm Nick. I'm here to pick up Hunter. Also, we've met before. <laughs> and Hunter's dad, I swear to you, he's just such in that mode. He was like, he hears that door open and he's like, lock and load, time to go. And so eventually he realizes who Nick is because they had 100% met before. I remember it. I was there. And so he gets Nick off the floor. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. I didn't mean to scare you, man. Hunter went to the store. I had him go get something. He'll be right back. You want something to drink? Come on inside, buddy. You're going to be okay. And so Nick is like, no, I'm going to go sit in my car. Like, I'll be fine. (laughs) Like, absolutely not. But, man, you talk about being ready. Hunter's dad is ready. Not only is he ready, he's like welcoming people in. He's like, you want some, come and get it. Like, let's go. Door's wide open. And so as, as, as funny as that illustration is and as silly as it is, we need to be the same way with our preparedness as far as attacking in the spirit. Like, we need to know the word well enough to where when the enemy comes to attack us, we're able to go, uh-uh, shield. mm I don't think so. And then give him poke back with that spirit, okay? And we see, oh, and, and let me, before I move into the, to the last part, if you're finding it difficult to like get in your word and get in the Bible, if you're just like you're like I'm going to read the Bible today and you sit down on the couch and you're like ah, do I start with the table of contents? I don't know. Like like let me let me give you like a great starting point. Um, every morning when I get up and I'm not saying this is perfect and I'm not and I'm not saying that I do it great. I'm just saying this is what I do and I think it's an easy way to get started. I wake up in the morning, I bow before the Lord and I just say God, like I am your vessel do with me as you will empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit that i may live for you today amen then i go and i make breeze coffee and i make my coffee and i feed my dog and i sit on the couch and i open up my phone and my phone does has i have do not disturb on so i don't see any notifications before 7 a.m i also do not see email notifications at all period unless i open the app i don't see them which is wonderful I open my phone, I hit the Uversion Bible app, and I open up to their, their daily devotional. Not a sponsor, by the way. This is just what works for me. And they have a, a verse of the day, which they used to just have the verse of the day, and that was it. But now they have the verse of the day, and then you can click on the next little portion, and it's like they have, sometimes they just have like pastors, or they have Christian artists, or they have... Um, the Bishop of Canterbury sometimes, randomly, and they will read through the word of the day and just guide you through like a short devo. Then they prompt you with some questions about like your prayer life, and then they'll have a section for prayer. It takes you like 15 minutes. Sometimes I'll get lost in the sauce, and sometimes it's like 30 minutes, but like it is the best thing for me because it puts my mind in the right place. It puts my mind of understanding my duty and my goal for today is to serve God's kingdom, my obligation is to put my will under the will of God and to live for him in every single thing I do. Otherwise, I wake up and I see a notification, an email from school. It doesn't matter what it's about. It could be triggering and I'm like, Oh, I remember how that kid talked to me yesterday. So disrespectful. I can't believe the youth of today. How dare they disrespect their elders like that? Or I can't believe that the way that parent talked to me. They're so disrespectful. No wonder their kid asks like that. It's an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Mm, how dare they? I can't believe the way Bree got sassy with me yesterday. <laughs> of course, I was, I was a little short with her, but she didn't have to talk to me that way, you know. And like I find myself relying on what? Or not relying on even, but I find myself going through all of these circumstances around me that I can lock into that are, have nothing to do with God's purpose for my life. It's all about finding comfort in my own skin. It's all about self-preservation. It's not about serving others. It makes me look inward. So if I can keep my eyes looking outward on God's purpose, all those circumstances take care of themselves. All of those fleshy desires, you stop those flaming arrows as soon as you possibly can and you toss them down. Because if you can protect your head, the second you wake up, you put yourself in a position to fight that battle as you go throughout the day. By the time I hit the schoolhouse doors, man, I'm ready to take over the world. I'm like, I'll save everybody. Come talk to me. So that moves us into um, our last point, which I was trying to think of like, man, how do we talk about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare? Like I could share like a personal story. I can share an anecdote from somebody, but I think the best place we see spiritual warfare being fought the way that it needs to be fought is in Matthew four, one through 11. And this is when Jesus is led into the wilderness. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. He was in a weakened state. He was hungry. He had a need to be met. And so, because he was hungry, he was vulnerable. Now, when the tempter came to him, Satan's like, oh, Jesus has been fasting. He's been committing his life to God. He's been setting God's will over his own. He's been putting God's purposes before his own purposes. This is a wonderful time to try to get at him. He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice Jesus doesn't say another word for him, uh, to him other than scripture. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Satan misquotes scripture back at Jesus. He says, oh, okay, we well, want to quote scripture. I know scripture. He's like, well, what about this, where it says that uh, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot of a stone. I mean, that's in the Bible, right? That says that, right? People, evil spirits, will misquote the Bible at you to try to attack you, to try to get you to stand down, which is, again, it's not good enough to just know John 3.16, You need to know his word. You need to know the context of his word so that you can stand firm on the truth that comes through it and not be misled by the wicked twisting of it. And Jesus comes back and says, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the lord your god and him only you shall serve then the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered to him that word ministered in the greek literally means to like help with whatever need at that time like the way that that word is used in greek depending on the circumstances like help somebody financially help somebody with hunger help somebody physically and so in this moment it's like the angels came to feed jesus he was hungry. He was in a, in a state where he could be vulnerable to attack. Satan came and attacked him. He resisted the devil. The devil fled from him, and God provided for his need afterward. And I think it's key to focus on the three things that Satan used to tempt Jesus. He tempted him with provision, provision for bread. He tempted him with salvation, salvation from harm. And he tempted him with possessions, And I think that if the enemy's going to come to attack Jesus and he's using those three, he's attacking Jesus with those three things, those must be the three biggest temptations because if he's going to attack us, he's going to use the same things that he attacked Jesus because Jesus was not one to mess with, obviously. So keep in mind, God's going to try to, or God, sorry, the enemy's going to try to attack you in your provision. He's going to say, hey, it's coming up to Christmas season. Oh, car just broke down. Oh, it's going to cost a lot of money. Are uh, you going to be able to provide Christmas for your family? Huh? He's going to try to attack you at salvation. You're like, hey, you're sick right now. Hey, your wife's sick right now. You really think he's going to heal her? You really think she's going to get better? Really? And then possessions. Man, you know, if you could get that guy to spend a little bit money on that house you're selling, like probably pocket a little extra money. Yeah, there's some water damage he doesn't know about. But like if we could up the price just a little bit, probably pay for that car par, car repair we need. Like, he's going to try to attack you in all of these places because these are the things our. our, our, sorry, I'm looking at my notes, getting lost. Our provision, our salvation, and our possessions are three things that hit directly into our fleshly comforts. It's all of those things that in the flesh and carnally, we need to feel comfortable that we don't need to trust God for. We go, oh, well, if I have all these things, if I'm comfortable, I don't need God anyway. So he's going to attack those things because he's going to try to make you as uncomfortable as possible because that's the quickest way to get you to turn away from your trust in God. So as we come to the end of this, let us remember to put on the full armor as we go into battle. Let's do it one last time just so we remember. Belt, body armor, boots, board, gourd, sword. Make sure we have these things prepared. Make sure this sword is sharpened. Make sure we are ready for whatever attack may come.